This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Office of Personnel Management is calling for nominations for the 2022 Presidential Rank Awards. The awards are among the most prestigious for government service, recognizing the contributions of members of the federal workforce. Last year's awardees included 230 winners from 37 different agencies. The deadline for this year's nominations is March 25th. The Navy's top admiral, Michael Gilday, wants a future fleet with 500 ships, 12 carriers and 150 unmanned vessels. Breaking Defense reports that this proposed structure is coming just weeks before the military services will begin drafting their FY24 budgets. The fleet numbers that Admiral Gilday suggested at a recent conference come from the Navy's 2020 assessment. The Defense Department has awarded two new contracts to purchase 18 million at-home COVID-19 test kits for Americans in coordination with the Department of Health and Human Services. These contracts align with the White House's efforts to deliver a billion free tests to Americans in response to the Omicron variant. The DOD contracts were funded through through the American Rescue Plan Act. The James Webb Space Telescope launched on December 25th after nearly three decades of development. The roughly $10 billion telescope sent back its first images just a few days ago. Crystal Johnson is Goddard's Deputy Director for Technology and Research Investments at NASA. Crystal, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us what the purpose of the James Webb Space Telescope is and what are we expecting to see that we haven't been able to see before? Yeah, so the James Webb Space Telescope, you can think of it as an extension or the next generation of the Hubble Telescope. As you've seen, the Hubble Telescope has given given us some amazing images, but this James Webb Space Telescope is much larger. It gives us a larger collection area. So we're gonna actually be able to see even further into the past than we have ever been able to see before. The Hubble Space Telescope was not um, as far in the infrared as this one is gonna be able to do. So not only are we gonna be able to see, you've seen the beautiful images that were kind of uh, a little blurry, this will bring them into vivid clarity. And you'll actually, because we have a coronagraph, it's kind of like holding your hand up over the sun or whatever is bright so that you can see all of the smaller details around it. So we'll be able to see formation of new stars. We'll be able to see galaxies and and all kinds of things that we weren't able to see before. But what does that mean when you say we're going to be able to see into the past? Yeah, connecting to the Big Bang. We've never been able to see all of the physics behind what happened that far ago. This is going to give us a, a possible opportunity to see way back then for the formation of even how we got to where we are in this in this galaxy. So how's it been going so far? Have we uh, what what are those images that we've been able to see? Yeah, so so far we're we're performing way better than we expected. The launch was absolutely amazing, put us right in the orbit that we needed to be in. The images that you're seeing right now are just the very preliminary images. As you know, there are 18 different mirrors around there and each of them, we've been successful in, in collecting an image from each of those. 
Now the work comes in to actually do the alignment of those mirrors and make sure that we are focusing in exactly on what we want to see. Um, it's going to be a couple, a, a little while before the telescope is fully operational. So we'll be able to see very vivid, clear images, but we are well on our way. And everything we're seeing so far is performing just as we expect. So tell us about some of the new technologies that had to be developed to enable this space telescope. That's a really good question. So this is such a huge endeavor. We had to develop so many different technologies to make it happen. Um, cryogenics, the cryo coolers, to be able to cool that mirror down. When you're looking in the infrared, you're looking for heat indications. And so if you're looking for heat way, way far away, a tiny, tiny, tiny little star that you see out there, you have to be very careful that your mirror and all of your instruments that you've got that are looking out there, are, that you're not mistaking their heat source as what you're looking for out there. And so we have to cool that thing down really significantly. We had to develop the, the refrigerators, the little refrigerators to cool that down um, as much as we possibly could. We had to do phase sensing so we could align the mirrors. It's algorithms that we had to develop to align the mirrors. We've transferred that over to people in the ophthalmology field so that they can actually do a quick mapping of the eye and be able to tell if someone has cataracts. And we've also been able to help them improve the LASIK surgery because of the algorithms we've had to develop for the James Webb Space Telescope. So Crystal, I did want to ask you about that. You mentioned the ophthalmology of these new technologies yes. being used yes. to improve life here on Earth. Yes, yes, we have so many technologies that we've had to, and so, we could talk about that, not just with the James Webb Telescope, but there's so many things that people are using every day that they don't even realize came from space and the money that has been spent on space, like the jaws of life. Everyone has seen those horrible accidents where people get mangled up in a car and you see the, the rescue workers rushing over with these big cutters to actually cut the person out of the vehicle. That came because we had to have some way of being able to cut metal in a zero G environment in space with only one person. We developed those, transitioned those to private industry, and now you have the jaws of life. And there's so many other, the run flat tires on, on your cars. We had to develop that because when the shuttle is landing, imagine coming down on the runway, hitting something, having that tire explode, and then the shuttle does a flip and you waste all of those millions and millions and millions of dollars. And no, so we definitely don't want that. <laughs> but everyone's safe driving their cars now. So what are some of the emerging technologies that Goddard is investing in right now? Yeah, so we're investing in some of the, the most critical ones, I think, are distributed sensor capabilities. So we're in the future, right, this mission that we have right here is a flagship mission. It's a really big platform. In the future, we're not going to be able to afford to do a whole lot of those. So there will be swarms of spacecraft all working together as one. And those, if we can actually do swarms, and we're doing swarms right now, but imagine reconfiguring those. So you're looking at one source, like a storm or something, you have something else developing over here, so you can command part of that swarm to go over here and do some other work. And you can imagine our Department of Defense and intelligence community, all of us have a very serious interest in developing all the tools you need to do that kind of mission. Crystal, it's NASA's objective to have sustainable life on Mars. What has been the biggest technology challenge to meet that goal? Oh, wow, the biggest. So because I'm responsible for, for thinking outside the box every single day, 
I will say for me, one of the, and we know getting the astronauts there is a challenge, the, the, the spacesuits, making sure we can hold up to the radiation protection is a challenge. There's so many, but our private industry partners and NASA and government will all work together to do that. But how are we going to communicate and navigate once we get to Mars? Right now here on Earth, the GPS system that we use has 35 satellites surrounding the Earth and you have to triangulate three of those to pinpoint exactly where you're located. That's how your GPS system works. So how are we gonna do that when we get to Mars? Put 31 satellites? No, I think we're gonna have to use something innovative like pulsars, neutron stars that rotate with a regular, regular frequency, just like a, a beacon on a, on a, you know, the lights. Those beacons actually rotate at such a precise timing that they're like an atomic clock. And we can use, there are many of those uh, neutron stars out there. If we can triangulate three or four of those, we can enjoy galactic travel that's very, very precise. Understanding that the GPS system here on Earth, you have people who would love to disrupt that in wartime. And so if we can develop a system that is not, no one can disrupt, we can really, really have a, a serious benefit when it comes to space travel. Well, this is all very exciting, Crystal. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing that with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Coming next, the government has spent more than $3 trillion in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to combat fraud, waste, and abuse in those future expenditures. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. USAspending.gov says that, the, that to date, the federal government has spent more than $3.5 trillion in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In all large government expenditure programs, some waste, fraud, and abuse is inevitable. Lessons learned from that pandemic spending can be used to deter further waste, fraud, and abuse in future programs, like the infrastructure law, so that proper oversight is in place. Glenn Fine is a former Inspector General for the Department of Justice and is currently at the Brookings Institution. Glenn, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So there was um, a committee made up of several Inspectors General called the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC. Has that been effective in overseeing pandemic spending? I think it has been useful to have the PRAC there to track oversight spending and to coordinate oversight by individual IGs of the pandemic relief spending. It has worked well. It has taken this responsibility seriously, but there has been significant fraud and waste in this COVID relief spending, partly because the amount of money that went out the door was significant and it went out very quickly in response to the COVID pandemic uh, disaster. So because there weren't sufficient internal controls over that money, there has been significant fraud and it will be harder to recoup that money once it's out the door. You know, part of the pandemic relief was the Paycheck Protection Program and the Inspector General for the Small Business Administration said that the mm -hmm. magnitude of fraud was, quote, unheard of and unprecedented. Why is that? I think because, partly because there weren't effective internal controls before the money went out the door. So normally things that are done, checking, against fraud lists to prevent the money from going out the door to people who don't deserve it didn't occur. There was uh, 
lightning speed to get that money out, but there was not the effective uh, oversight of that money. So there was significant fraud. Normally fraud in government programs is on the order of 5% or, or 7%. Estimates of the fraud in this program are significantly higher because of that speed that it went out the door without effective checks on it. So Glenn, is that money that was gotten through fraud, is that gone, gone, or can we get some of that back for the American taxpayer? Well, the inspector general is does have many investigative uh, oversight efforts to get it back. There are cases, there, there will be recouping of that money, but it's much harder to get that money once it's out the door and disappeared. Often the people with fraudulent businesses, fake identities, uh, and it, it is very difficult to get all of it back, but some of it will be uh, recouped. And that's what the inspectors general are doing. And that's what the PRAC is helping the inspectors general to do to recoup that money. So let's talk about some of that coordinated oversight that you're talking about, um, because this is trillions of dollars. So how do you go about coordinating oversight of that much money? Well, the, the PRAC is trying to do that through the work of the inspectors general. There are 21 inspector general on that, that committee. The PRAC has tools to help those inspectors general, including data analytics tools to look at uh, fraudulent uh, indicators, uh, such as fictitious names, uh, money going to the same address, small, small businesses that are alleged have many employees when they don't have any employees at all. Some small businesses claim to have a million employees so weren't even eligible in the first place. So the PRAC is helpful with its data analytic tools and it has also created a public facing website to show where that money is going. And in addition, it has a hotline for people to call in tips and complaints and it then provides that information to the individual inspectors general, as well as with investigative support to those inspectors general. So turning to the infrastructure spending now, the law doesn't include independent oversight of that funding. Do you know why that wasn't included in the law? I think it was a mistake not to create a similar coordinating entity like the PRAC to oversee infrastructure spending. Infrastructure spending is a fertile target for fraudsters. Uh, it's difficult often to verify uh, the, the, money that go, the, the money that goes out the door. Uh, costs are difficult to uh, verify. There can be bid rigging and collusion so that it is a fertile target for fraudsters. And there do, does need to be coordinated oversight of that, like the PRAC helps to do with the COVID funds. There was some money in the infrastructure bill that was given to individual inspectors general, but there wasn't that uh, coordinating body like the PRAC or like in with the Recovery Act in 2008, there was a recovery board. I think that was an oversight. So what's your biggest recommendation then for reducing waste, fraud and abuse in the infrastructure law and in future large expenditure programs? There are a few. One is to make the PRAC permanent so that its tools don't lapse when the COVID relief spending is over and it can hit the ground running when there are large infrastructure bills or other bills with large expenditure programs. Two, ensure that IGs are funded adequately. IGs return money to the government, but they have increasing demands on them with the, with the uh, large expenditures and they haven't been given adequate resources. So we should make the, the increase in IG funding commensurate with their increased responsibilities. And then 
we should also make sure that there is an oversight body to coordinate uh, oversight of the the large expenditure bills. So, for example, Pratt could be made responsible for coordinating oversight over infrastructure spending or other large expenditure programs. Don't let these important tools lapse so that they can hit the ground running when there are new expenditures that need oversight. All right. Well, Glenn, thanks very much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Coming next, the White House wants to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the challenges of a carbon-free electric grid. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Biden administration has a national goal of reaching completely carbon-free electricity by 2035. Achieving that goal will involve transitioning power production, upgrading thousands of miles of transmission, and more. Jonathan Mock is a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So what does it actually mean to have carbon-free electricity? Is it a complete transition to renewables like wind and solar? So there are multiple ways to do it. People often think of just using wind and solar, and that's one way to definitely have carbon-free electricity, but there are other technologies. So nuclear is a very proven carbon-free technology, but it's often more expensive. Um, there are unproven carbon-free technologies, such as putting carbon capture in storage. So you have fossil fuel plants with uh, technology on it that captures the carbon emissions. But generally, it's gonna be some mix of those things and very heavily dependent on wind and solar. You know, going to zero emissions in general means that there's going to be more demand on the electrical grid. Isn't that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Most studies that show um, they're going to zero emissions have a lot more electricity because if you think about it, think of our cars, for instance. So right now, our most cars are powered by gasoline. If all of a sudden everyone's using electric vehicles, there's going to be a huge amount of energy that was not going through the electric system that all of a sudden is. And that's just one example. There's also things like heating. A lot of heating is natural gas. A lot of futures in uh, where we're thinking of a net zero system uh, have electric heating. And that, again, means there's a lot more energy that would need to flow through the electric grid. So then, Jonathan, higher demand for electricity means that new electrical transmission lines will need to be built. What are the estimates for how much we're going to need? Uh, a lot. So some of the estimates say two to three times more transmission. And if you think of how long it's taken us to build the electric grid now, it's going to be trillions of dollars, a couple trillion to do this investment, um, or some of the best estimates, and just a lot new of new transmission. Small lines, large lines, especially important are these large high voltage transmission lines, which take energy from one part of the country to another part of the country. So it's going to be a big overhaul of the grid that's needed. So what's the likelihood, do you think, of meeting the president's goal of having carbon-free emissions uh, electricity by 2035? So I think it's tough, but it's still doable. But we need to really start now in terms of changing some of the policies. So when people think of meeting this goal, they often think, oh, well, let's just build lots of wind and lots of solar, and that will do it. But actually, the grid is really important. So if you look back in 2020, there was something like 750 gigawatts of uh, capacity for electricity that was being proposed but not yet connected to the grid. That's something like ability to power 80 to 90 million homes. So the grid is becoming a real bottleneck that needs to be paid attention to. So that's the bad news. The good news is the Biden administration and the infrastructure bill really has started to focus on this. Um, so there's something called the 
Building a Better Grid Initiative in the Department of Energy. It was funded by the infrastructure bill that's really starting to try and figure out how to um, basically build a better grid, how to um, for solve these siting issues, how to build, uh, plan new transmission. So there is progress that there's promising signs and progress that I think is being made, but it's going to be difficult. So talk about some of the investments then, uh, in particular, and how to prioritize those investments to get us in that direction of decarbonizing the electrical system. So one uh, major bottleneck and problem with transmission investments right now is it's often the planning of transmission is done pretty much exclusively on a regional and sub-regional level. So there are these different organizations across the country that do transmission planning, but they don't often do um, kind of long distance transmission planning. It's as if we are trying to think of building a highway and uh, or I-95 and instead of doing a five lane highway, we can only build uh, local one lane roads the whole way. And so that makes it a lot more difficult. And again, fortunately, there's signs of kind of the Biden administration trying to figure out how to better coordinate, but that's traditionally been the issue. Um, another problem with the transmission planning and figuring out the investments is that a lot of these transmission planning organizations are pretty much legally uh, prohibited from prioritizing carbon reductions over reliability and costs. And so that's another thing that needs to change. Well, speaking of costs, I wonder what the cost of electricity in a carbon-free system would be. Like, does it become more expensive or less expensive for the consumer? So a lot of studies will show that it could become less expensive. I mean, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. It'll depend on lots of factors. The thing is that there's not one way to do a carbon-free electricity system. There's multiple different ways. And depending on our policies, it can become more or less expensive. So if it's easier to build transmission uh, and cheaper to build transmission, will have cheaper net uh, carbon-free electricity. If it becomes harder to build transmission, that could increase the costs and make it more expensive. And so really the policy decisions we make, the way we build the system can dramatically uh, change the costs. All right, well, Jonathan, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thanks so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor. Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now 
managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.